Yes, food connects us all. Yes, we all eat and we rely on the earth to feed us. But what can chefs do to ensure that given our changing environment, we can continue to rely upon our earth? April Bello, chef and activist, talks about these issues. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with April Bello. She's a chef and the program manager of Chef's Brigade. She works with chefs on boats, on coastal issues, as well as food insecurity and regenerative practices. Welcome, April. Thanks for having me, Liz. I'm excited to talk with you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what being the program manager of Chef's Brigade entails? Well, Chef's Brigade, uh, it's been an organically evolving organization. It started in the aftermath of COVID and quickly just evolved into a very beautiful and large thing, which became a partnership between Chef's Brigade multiple different nonprofit organizations, as well as 90 plus restaurants, caterers, food trucks, and whatnot. So while that's its humble beginnings, it's evolved into something completely different. And uh, what it entails now or currently doesn't necessarily look like what it's going to be in the future. But where we are now is I'm developing a program called Chefs on Boats, um, collaborating with several people and organizations on this piece, but the build out is basically we've been piloting a tour that brings chefs as well as other food service tree workers anywhere, anyone from shuckers to servers, bartenders, if you handle food and have an interest in learning about where it comes from and specifically seafood, of course, is what I'm talking about here. Um, then we are targeting the individuals that are looking to connect with where that stuff comes from, as well as learn about coastal issues along the way. The program itself is, it's been, again, organically evolving. So a lot of what I do right now is communications-based, and I'm building out curriculum for its next edition. We've kind of been fielding everything that we've been doing, which you know, it's been wonderful, again, collaboration. Uh, There's that word that we use a lot uh, between Captain Richie Blink with Delta Discovery Tours and us to really like zero in on some of the issues that Lower Plaquemines Parish is facing in the wake of climate change, as well as um, just the, the various different fisheries related issues down there. But he's developed it to be very specific to that area. And we're now working towards making part of it easy to replicate across different areas in the Delta and the Gulf Coast, uh, and then still always have room for the more regional input, regional being the very specific parishes and waterways. 
Okay, so we're talking about Louisiana, and that's why we're talking mm -hmm. about parishes. What are the kind of coastal issues that you are addressing, and how does that affect our seafood? So some of the coastal issues that were that that are very pressing. In fact, it's it, it's interesting because I started learning about them as a child in a classroom in Louisiana, um, but it didn't feel real or like it was something that was tangible to me when I heard about land loss, you know. And I remember them very distinctly, teachers telling us about the football fields, you know, a day that are being lost, but it still doesn't mean anything to a child uh, or even to anyone. It doesn't mean anything to adults either. <laughs> it really doesn't. It really doesn't because, you know, it's, it's, it's just not a good visual and it's not even accurate in how that is depicted like that might be the same mass of land that's being eroded, but it's not all happening in one specific area at any given time. It's you know, long shore drift has been happening for a long time. That's been eroding away our <clears throat> barrier islands and our various components of the estuaries, our marsh grasses, um, and it's you know it's been happening more rapidly over the course of the last like thirty to forty years. The more fishermen I talk with, and we do get to, you know, on the tour, often connect with generational fishermen and oystermen, uh, as well as people that are, have come up in that area. And we get to learn about things like the areas that, of what look like open water now that once had, and when I say once, I mean, just, I don't know, a decade ago, <laughs> land and camps on them. So land loss is one of the issues that we that that is absolutely just undeniable and 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 it's just easy to see firsthand. Another issue is the saltwater intrusion that's happened as a, a result of land loss. And that saltwater intrusion, while it can be beneficial for some sectors of of the seafood industry, namely oysters. It can also be very detrimental to the wellness of the entire estuary because many of the grasses and, and plants that keep that land intact are washing away more rapidly and especially with larger storms as a result of that salt creeping in. So on the tour, we get to actually see it firsthand. We get to look at it on a map and see where the land was in over the course of not just there's some maps that we have that we point to that are earlier in the century and then also is up until early 2000s. And it's a stark contrast in what was there and what is there now. And we get to connect. On Monday and Tuesday, we were talking to a generational oysterman down there, and he's very passionate and, and willing to share his his feelings on what it means to look around and see no more marsh where when he was a child. It, it was small bayous passing through there, but now it's open water. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I, I always get annoyed with when this issue comes up is that it seems as though Louisiana is left to deal with it on our own. And it's really the entire country that's losing this land. It's not just Louisiana that loses the really land. Is. And yet it's really not seen as a national issue. It's seen as a Louisiana specific issue. I get annoyed with that kind of very narrow approach to this because Absolutely. not only does it mean that the landmass of America becomes smaller, but it also means that 
all of the food that we have in the Gulf of Mexico, that is so much of the seafood that's eaten in the entire country, is in jeopardy. And it's not just we who are affected by it. And it's also true, probably, that if there were less seafood, we would still get it first. And so, yeah, <laughs> so and, you know, that, and that may be true. It is, it, and the thing is, too, it's like, it, you know, the seafood is, is actually not as volatile. You know, I feel like we're going to suffer the most for it. And maybe, maybe we deserve it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not here to say, right? It's the fact that we have come to rely on, on this bounty and take it for granted for it, it will always be here for us. But the truth is, you know, it will move. Now, oysters aren't going to move quite, quite as fast. Right. They aren't a swimming species, but they, as a species, as long as they are able to move out further and have something to grasp onto, they'll just be harder for us to get to. The fish that swim and the crabs that move, they'll just move somewhere else. Um, but don't that you will, that some of the um, their, their periods of development require sometimes brackish water, sometimes salty sure. water. And if we don't have any more brackish water, that it's going to affect the possibility of, of the species continuing? Surely, I think that we will always have, the thing is, when the coast creeps up, we're still going to end up having period zones where it's brackish. Uh, it's going to be, but I don't think they'll be as desirable for those species. I think you're right. I think they'll end up finding more desirable areas, east or west. Yeah, I think the fisheries that we visit currently will not be viable fisheries when they become open water, at least not for the same species that we've become accustomed to and that whole families and, and, and towns livelihoods have relied on. I do. Yes, absolutely. I, I think there will be less of that habitat for them, but we're going to get pushed in further too. I mean, of course. Yeah. We'll have the personal changes and ways of life and part of the culture will probably be lost because of that. It's all connected. It absolutely is. I was Doing these classes during the summer, I was able to had the honor of being able to attend Mississippi River Delta Institute as well as Mississippi Institute, which is or Mississippi River Institute, which is kind of the same program. It's where they take teachers from the, this part of the Delta and specifically around St. Bernard Parish and uh, as well as teachers from the headwaters of the Mississippi River. And they bring them down to learn about the, our relationship with the river, but also in an immersive learning way format. And then arming teachers with the tools of having more immersive classroom experiences with their students, um, learning about science. And, and again, part of that is the water cycle and the ecosystems that surround them. So they bring teachers down from Minnesota for the Mississippi River Delta Institute, and then they flip it, you know, for the next month and brought us up to the headwaters to learn about the Mississippi River up there. And it's completely changed my relationship with the river. I've always, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with that river. I grew up <laughs> eight blocks away from it. I live four blocks from it now. I named a business after it, you know, I, the, 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 the river is a very powerful thing that moves through all of us. And in one way, shape or form, if you live in America, you're touched by that river. But there was a, some wording that was used in it and it was called one river thinking. Mm -hmm. And 
I found that to be very interesting because I think it just kind of circles back to what you're saying. It affects the whole country, but that one river drains 32 states. And then, you know, that one coast is not just Louisiana either. It's, you know, it, we are talking about these changes are happening, not just along the Louisiana coast. That's what we're focusing on, but these are changes and, 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 ecosystems that are affected by you know human impacts nationwide along the coasts so i think that you know all that to say what we're doing is is very specific to our area and and we're really focusing on that in hopes of broadening it beyond you know just these river parishes and hopefully you know learning from others that are doing similar programming across other parts of the coast and eventually hopefully expanding it from, you know, at least across the Gulf Coast. And so when we talk about regenerative practices, what what do you mean then about that? You know, we learned, I, I first heard that term in the agriculture sector and that's, you know, because I also have done a lot of work in that in that realm as well and have an active interest in just shortening the supply chain in general for a number of reasons. And when I heard that term, it more or less meant, you know, in the agricultural realm, using soil amendments on site versus shipping things in and making, you know, or, or doing large impacts like monocropping large swaths of land, you can actually create biodiversity within your farm and do like rotational grazing if you're a cattle farmer, for instance, or, you know, you can also mindfully plot out your, your farm to be, to have verms that attract wildlife, but also, you know, rotating your crops in sections versus, you know, thinking across the entire plain. Well, in fisheries, what I found fascinating and, and what I'm just recently learning is that, you know, first of all, I never once thought about the fact that oystermen are farmers. It just hadn't, occurred to me, you know, oysters were these, it was the, the species that we, came, we that came in huge sacks in, in literal like stacks of sacks that came in on a dolly in the restaurants that I worked from, you know, for. I never once then thought about who was harvesting them or maintaining their oyster farms or also what their biological functions are uh, in, in the world versus just for us to eat. Um, but as far as regenerative practices go, what I've been learning is part of what that means is, um, you know, some oystermen will just maintain their leases by, you know, ro- ro- they have enough leased land or water bottoms that they can just continuously move on from lease to lease and come back to their previous, you know, say a plot that they haven't maintained for a year or two. And, and there will be some natural... Uh, um, accumulation of oysters that have been naturally seeded there season to season. But then there are others that will, as they're actually out there harvesting, they're also dropping aggregate for that, those oysters to stick to, I say stick to, to spat to. And over time, what it does is it starts to mimic what a living reef or a living shoreline looks like. It's the, it starts to build up and continues to build up the water bottom versus just take, take, take. Mm-hmm. 
So that's one example of regenerative practices that I've been, you know, kind of learning about. And really that's the main, the primary one that comes to mind when, when talking about the fisheries, except now another, actually two, just earlier this week, I was, we had a uh, chef Mike Nelson from over at GW Fins out and he's just really great. I mean, he's made it his life work to work within the sustainable fisheries and, or towards the sustainable fisheries. And it's just a wealth of knowledge and, and, and just learning from him how he approaches his procurement and processing. He's very passionate about only bringing in whole fish and using all parts. So to me, that's also, that's an in-house regenerative practice that we don't think about how that, what that looks like as far as regenerative, all except for the fact that it's instead of just taking from the fisheries for one piece it's taking the whole, you know, the whole thing and actually making more, you making use of all of it. And I'm not sure that that's the proper word, you know, to, to use as regenerative as much as it's uh, more like in line with sustainability. But in my mind, it makes sense in the, in the grand scheme of things that if more people were practicing that way, that it would naturally, you wouldn't have to take as much from the system. Does that make sense? Yes, of course. Yes, it does. So, and then the other sort of pillar that we talked about in your work deals with food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And so is that something that you deal with in terms of members of the food and hospitality industry and their food insecurity? Or is it something that has to do with food insecurity among people more generally, say related to a hurricane or what? All of the above. What's funny is I didn't realize when I was a teenager that I would become obsessed with personal food security almost immediately when I got into the industry. But that is very much what it became because, you know, first I just wanted, I needed a job. And so I, you know, jumped into the restaurant industry in Jackson Square working at a cafe that morphed into restaurants and wanted to go to art schools, talking to a, a mentor at the time who, you know, was very passionate about explaining to me all the possibilities within the culinary world in terms of, you know, the different types of houses you can work in, the different places you can travel, all the other things. And I was also talking to someone at, you know, career day at school. And, and he asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, I want to be an artist. And he's like, well, you're going to starve to death. And I went to work that day where, uh, you know, you get, it's built in food security at work because you get a family meal oftentimes and you're learning a skill that can definitely be transformative in the way that, you know, you can take, learn how to take raw ingredients and turn that into food, not just for yourself, but for many. So something clicked that day and I, and I realized that, okay, this is my personal food security. Fast forward a decade or so later and the Baton Rouge floods came about and, you know, after serving probably at that point, millions of people through the lens of a restaurant, you know, like I was not alone in that there was this huge, I don't know, social commitment that a lot of my colleagues and I had to getting food to people because we knew that they couldn't, you know, the Baton Rouge floods were the first time that I was able to, to realize it, I was in a space where I was able to 
not just focus on my current work, which was at the time Killer Po Boys, but also able to juggle, you know, volunteering at Second Harvest and spinning, again, working with other colleagues who were very passionately um, giving themselves and their time and their skills to produce mass quantities of food to get it to people who were suddenly stranded, right? Like those floods stranded people in a very unexpected way. No one was prepared for it. Their food bank flooded, you know, so there was, there was a great need. And so I got interested in it there as far as, you know, like, or passion, more impassioned about it. Uh, again, fast forward to, you know, COVID and, and I didn't let that go. I, I always made that part of something I talked about to staff and students because I wound up teaching at Delgado and specifically about the importance of using this, the, learning these skills so that you can be prepared personally and as a community member to help fill the, the needs within the community food security realm. But fast forward to COVID and no one saw that coming, right? Yeah. Um, I, at that point, was working at Noki and wait, was wait, in the wait. procurement position. I was thought. Wait, uh, wait, let's let's go back because people forgot and they walked in and it was really loud sure. in here. So sure. let's let's go back to COVID. All right. So yeah. so how did COVID affect food insecurity and your practices? So I mean, COVID shut everything down. Right. So and everyone, it was food security became very real or insecurity became very real for a lot of people immediately in ways that never, we never saw before. You know, grocery stores shut down, the restaurants shut down. And so the built-in you know, security that you had of like, even if you worked in a restaurant and being able to get staff meal was no longer a possibility. You, if you were a senior, you couldn't go to the grocery store or order takeout for yourself. If you were if you suddenly had COVID, you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't get food. You know, it, it also in shutting down the supply chain, it, it caused a, a number of other issues. But what initially happened is, and these are side-by-side things. I didn't start working directly with Chef's Brigade until about May after COVID. But in the, the immediate aftermath, I started working at Noki with, uh, joined the food security task force with the city and of New what Orleans. what is Noki? New Orleans Culinary and Hospitality Institute. So I was working there in procurement. And again, it was one of those like, okay, what to do? And I joined the city of New Orleans Food Security Task Force, which was comprised of basically everybody that was in feeding, right? Some, so from World Central Kitchen, which came in immediately afterwards to assist to the second harvest, any of the, all the food satellite pantries, everyone just immediately sprung up onto a weekly call kind of check in and figure out who's getting missed. But I was also working directly with World Central Kitchen and hands-on NOLA to help work out their logistics. There was I was the only staff member on ground at Noki after the shutdown. So I immediately saw that there was a need for someone that has logistical experience and food safety experience. And so, you know, I immediately started onboarding all of the new volunteers in the way of food safety, time and temperature controls, washing the importance of washing hands and maintaining like, the social distancing because somebody, you know, had to be there to, in addition, like hands-on did a great job. Don't get me wrong, but in situations like that, it really did take some more, like some reminding, right. And some more enforcement. So right, I worked with them. We started with, it was the 
seniors, it was, the initiative was called Feeding the Seniors. We started out with piloting you know, on day one. I think it was just like like 300 meals or so uh, that were prepared. You know, it was, it was a, a, a company called Rev, Revolution Foods that prepared like uh, after school meals. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were already kitted. So they started dropping off cases and within a week that ramped up to several thousand within a month that ramped up into several more thousand. I mean, pallets, we're talking pallets of food by two weeks in, we were again, using the power, the collective power of the 30 plus volunteer force between packing and organizing, boxing and delivering food to seniors. And then I think that also with COVID, you had people who had never been in food insecure before. And so they didn't necessarily even know who to contact or how to ask for help because they'd never needed it before. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, And so there were behind the scenes, many people working hard to try to fill those needs and figure out, you know, how to help each other find the ones that were missing because you're right. They didn't, a lot of people didn't know, like, who do I call? What do I do? You know, some people, we had a lot of people putting in calls to 311 for family members. And then, so while we were doing that initiative across the city, Chef's Brigade was spinning up to provide meals to state police and first responders using the collective power of restaurants to execute that food. And so they, in a, in a very similar fashion, you know, we're just working to identify, identify the needs as well as like the people that can produce and, and deliver. And in, they were able to provide several thousand meals that way. Once again, I mean, I don't think anyone thought of the fact that these are working professionals that are used to being able to at least go to the grocery store or go to a restaurant or whatever it may be, but suddenly they still have to work, but they can't, where do you get food? So right. They filled that need simultaneously. And uh, then around May is when the, the city's, um, well, I'll backtrack and say, I was then at that point, very much obsessing over the fact that um, these restaurants were gonna close if, uh, if something wasn't done because, and it's a restaurant's not just a restaurant. A restaurant is anywhere from like, small mom and pop, two to three people, upwards of three to 400 people, if you're a hotel, you know, who Mm -hmm. would suddenly be without staff meal, who would suddenly be, you know, without a paycheck as well. So, you know, immediately it was alarming to me that, that if something wasn't done, we would have a much bigger problem. And thankfully that RFP to the city and FEMA went out that called for proposals to be able to deliver meals to residents who were in need. And we then connected. I was still at Noki and Chef's Brigade, put a call out on Facebook looking for partners to be able to execute this contract. And we all came together with, again, that was wound up being a partnership between Chef's Brigade, Noki, Revolution Foods, Delivery NOLA, uh, and Healthy School Foods Initiative. And we, uh, within two weeks were geared up to start receiving food from that would be produced by local restaurants in volume and to be like, you know, very well-balanced meals per what the contract 
requests were. They were to be dropped off, then repacked at Revolution Foods and kitted in the same fashion that we were doing with the seniors. It would be like seven meals per kit getting dropped off to residents. And, um, you know, it, it, and there was no, you didn't have to have, be, for instance, poor or anything like that. I mean, like you, anyone qualified for those meals who had, you know, regardless of, of you know, what your financial situation was. And so it was more why, about, no, why was it that it was, it was food that was prepared as opposed to just giving people say oranges and rice and beans and things like that? Well, because that would have meant that 90 plus restaurants would have closed. Okay. So you know? part, part of the uh, part of the contract, the contract yeah, was them, was them actually cooking it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was designed to actually get restaurants, you know, keep restaurants going. I, I'm not sure that restaurants was part of the RFP, but that was what we pitched because of the fact that, you know, I mean, that's, that's what they do, but also any, anytime they had the ability to still process things, it did have to be ready to eat meals. Mm -hmm. That was part of the contract. Um, now, again, if you were already receiving meal assistance through say second harvest or a local pantry then you wouldn't have qualified for this so you were and, and there would have been no changes in what you were receiving but um you know for anyone else it's more geared towards people that were being that were testing positive for covid although they didn't have to prove you know that they tested positive there were lots of musicians and cultural cultural bearers that again were sudden and restaurant workers that were suddenly in the position in, of like in the medicine. very beginning there were no tests anyway so right. you just right. think <laughs> right so collectively we were able to put out what started as a one month contract wound up being eleven months and collectively we put out almost four million meals just through that program the previous program it was around three million so um, you know. That is something that still stands out to me as uh, it, it, it is and it will be an ongoing issue as, you know, as long as we have these large populations that need food, the way that we are set up is not designed to be able to be food secure. Uh, fast forward to Hurricane Ida and I was still at the school and I stayed in World Central Kitchen deployed there. We were immediately, I immediately had to pivot and work out the logistics for receiving and helping out in any way that I could internally to, for the team to produce about 20,000 meals a day. And those meals were going from, you know, Orleans Parish. We had first responders coming to pick them up. I mean, there was no, there was a whole team that was monitoring the intake of that, of, of the requests and whatnot, and organizing that piece because it was a completely different format, but anything from you know again first responders to churches to you know uh, council people they were all able to connect and get large format hot meals to pick up and the the reach was I mean a lot of meals were going down to Lafitte and like all, all surrounding parishes right. you know anywhere the right. need was we were there producing very large volumes with a lot of really wonderful people and you know, again, a lot of the same same skills that we all honed as chefs came in handy there because it's all about time management, organization, communication, 
you know, it's all the same skills that you, that you have used and obsessed over, but you know, it's just a larger format. And I think it's a beautiful thing because I don't, so many people to give selflessly and to, to literally like go home and sweat it out because they have no power still. <laughs> right. right. You know. well, it, it sounds as though all the things that you're doing are shifting and changing depending on the immediate need at the time, which I think probably makes a lot of sense. You need to be very flexible. Sounds, it sounds like a very important thing that we all should be supporting. So I want to thank you, April, so much for everything that you've shared with us. Wow. And I also hope that there are similar organizations all over the country, because even if they aren't dealing with some of the coastal issues, there still is in food insecurity and the need for regenerative practices all over the place. So thanks so much for everything you shared. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And it's great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.